open up to Luke chapter 15. You know, I'm a big fan of good food. I love to eat. I know everything there is to know about eating. And if any of you who are close to me, you know that I, like every restaurant's my favorite restaurant. And there are many restaurants I haven't visited yet. But there's one place in particular I like to, to go to. I like to frequent quite often. Um, it's not healthy to frequent there often, but I sometimes do. And if I want to go to Hamburger in town, nine times out of ten, I'm going to go to Smashburger. Amen? And I get the same thing every single time I walk in there. One time I didn't, I, I was very disappointed. Because that one thing I get every single time just makes me happy. And it's the Colorado burger. If anybody has ever had the Colorado burger, it is remarkable. It has these green chilies that are sliced, thinly sliced. They grill them and they put them on the burger. And then they normally put the pepper jack cheese and the cheddar cheese on it. I told them to hold the cheddar cheese, put double pepper jack on it. And it has all the toppings. And then the bun really tops it off. It's like this chipotle bun. It's super soft. And I've, I don't know how many times I've had this burger. But every time I eat it, I'm satisfied. I know what exactly I'm getting every time I go in there. And I know the outcome. I'm going to be happy every time I get done eating that. Right? And I go there. As it's not my first time, I free, I, I'll go there maybe once a month and get this hamburger because I simply enjoy it and I like it. It's not new to me. But, and there's many other places to try, but I kind of like going to that one place because I like it so much. Now bear with me here. There are certain sections in the Bible that there's scripture that you have frequented many times, that you have visited many times, and you know everything about it. You've learned all that you can about that section of scripture. But it's just good to revisit it. Because it's good for you to revisit it. And the passage of scripture we're going through today is one of the most popular sections of scripture that we have. It's the prodigal son story. And for some of you, Raise your hand if you've gone through this story. Most of you have gone through this story. It's kind of like the Colorado burger of the Bible. <laughs> it's just good. Even though you've been there, it's good. And sometimes we just need to do that. We can't always explore for the new thing. We need to go back and hear a truth again and again and again just because it's simply good to. The prodigal son story is a famous story. If you have never gone through it, this is your first time going through it, man, I hope you enjoy it. Because it really is an amazing passage of scripture that displays the heart of God. 
And any student of the Bible, you know that you could spend many, many services explaining this one section of scripture. There are so many layers to it. But tonight, I want you to focus, we're going to focus on one particular, I think it's the most important layer of this scripture. It's just simply focusing on God's heart. If you can get something out of it that just say, I just want to focus on the goodness of God and find out his heart, then I think that we win coming out of here. I think we'd be full and satisfied coming out of here. Because at the end of the day, the most important part of any Bible study is connecting with our Heavenly Father. And the only way to do that is through the knowledge of the Scriptures. It's the only place we can find the character of God. You can look out into creation and you can see the hand of God, the majesty of God. He's an artist. He's a designer. He's a creator. That's a general revelation. But you can only find his character in the scriptures. And what a beautiful thing it is when Jesus hits the scene and he displays it and he teaches it. This passage of scripture is one of those sections of scripture that just exposes the heart of God in a a remarkable, beautiful way. So as we enter into this, I want you to kind of Hopefully, we're all on the same page. We're looking for the hearts of God in this passage of Scripture. There are a ton of application points you can pull out of it. And we hopefully we will. But the number one is let's find Jesus. Let's find the heart of God. Because then that's what gives us true change. As Tozer says in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. It's my most famous, or it's my, my favorite quote of any book. He opens it up. It's his last book that he ever wrote. He opens it up and he says, the most important thing about any of us is what comes to our minds when we think about God. What comes to my mind and your mind, the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And if you have a right understanding of God, then that means that you can go in the right direction and you will know your heavenly father better. So as we enter in here, this is a passage of scripture that's going to sink our teeth. We're going to sink our teeth in it and we're going to find out who God is. Then all the tax collectors and sinners, 15.1, drew near to him, that's Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So as we start in this section of scripture, We run into something like that. And it reminds me to pray before I start teaching. (laughs) Father, I thank you so much. You're so good and you're so wonderful. Would you teach us tonight with your Holy Spirit? Help us to understand this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, I locked on to these two verses, studying this this week. And I thought about it a lot and I got excited about it because here we are, the tax collectors and sinners, the worst of the worst in the society, the thieves, the extortioners, the sinners means prostitutes and a whole host of other people who trespass willfully. 
It's everything that the church looks at and says, that is exactly what's wrong with the world. Right? At least that's what they were thinking right here, these Pharisees and scribes. And where do we see Jesus? Hanging out, eating with them. And what I locked in on here was they drew near to Jesus. That means, that tells us something about who Jesus is. That tells us he's a rather kind person, a generous person, somebody you can relate with. A person who speaks truth because he has something to offer them and people were following him. But look who was drawing near to him. It's the worst of the worst. And he loved to hang out with the worst of the worst. He would eat with them, meaning in that society that you have just created an amazing bond. Because if you sit down and you eat with somebody, that you're saying, this is my friend, I have their back. And here's God coming in human flesh. And where is he to be found? Hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. Everything, the church structure in that day, despised. And the Pharisees let him know that. They complained about this. One thing I love about Jesus, as I study him more, he's just so radical. He just cuts straight through culture. He determines how we as a church are to function, how we are to relate to people. And if Jesus is hanging out with a group of ragtag people and sitting down and enjoying a meal with them, and he's in conversation with them. And of course he's speaking the gospel because that was his mission. It tells us in Mark 1.14 and 1.15. Everywhere he went, he proclaimed the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But he did it in an attractive way to where people wanted to hang out with him. And remember, he's a rabbi. He's a teacher. Everybody knew him as somebody of a religious structure or stature. And they were so attracted to him. And I was just thinking, God, help me. Well, hopefully people feel comfortable around me. They don't necessarily feel judged to the point where I'm thinking I'm better than they are. Because Jesus, nobody draws around somebody who, where they feel like they're just always condemned by them. Nobody sits around in his company with those people. They're not fun people to hang out with. But these people found comfort hanging out with Jesus and listening to what he had to share. That means he was probably in their lives asking them questions, even though he knew everything about them. He was asking questions. He's relatable. And it's okay. Do you think any of these people were sitting there at this table cussing? Maybe. Probably. That's just what they did. They're sinners. That's what sinners do. And he wasn't offended by it. Now, there's speculation involved because it doesn't talk about what was going on at the table. Maybe they weren't. But more than likely, they, they were just rough around the edges. And Jesus made them feel comfortable. But at the same time, he's speaking truth. And as we study the life of Jesus, may we start to feel comfortable like Jesus did. Make people draw near to us. But at the same time, we have to speak the truth in love. And we can only figure out how to do that really is by studying the life of Jesus. But these people, these Pharisees, 
and these scribes, if you're not familiar with those two terms are, a Pharisee equivalent today would probably be a pastor of a church who knows the scripture and a scribe in that day was like a lawyer of the scripture. So you can maybe consider them like a seminary professor. So those two groups of people were looking at Jesus and it's just like they're just seething because he was, he was threatening their power. He was threatening everything that they stood for. And they didn't like it, but they should have known better. They had the Old Testament. They had the scriptures. They should have known better. And they completely missed it. They completely missed Jesus. And this is why they created their own God to suit their own lifestyle. They thought this was the way God is. And it was totally off mark to where when Jesus came, they didn't even identify him. They couldn't even register that he was God himself. They created their own God to suit their own lifestyle because they didn't have knowledge of God. They did not sink into the Old Testament to find the heartbeat of God. They were more worried about looking righteous on the outside and they totally missed it, completely missed it. And so he spoke this parable to them in verse three. So he's trying to give them a story to relate to something spiritual and it has meaning. That's what a parable is. Over half of Jesus' teachings was done in parables, over half. And in this parable, it's a trilogy, if you will. There's three parts to it. There's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. So let's go through, and Jesus is going to sit here and try to get you to see it in your mind's eye, something that's relatable every day to the kingdom of God. And he says to the Pharisees and the scribes, so to set the scene, you have these Pharisees and the scribes who are complaining, and Jesus is going to address them. But the tax collectors and the sinners are still around. They're in the audience, and they're listening. And watch Jesus. He's a brilliant teacher. He can hit them all at one time and teach them. What man of you, he says to these Pharisees and these scribes, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now in that day, the shepherd is the lowest of the low. It's a low uh, job status, if you will. These Pharisees weren't shepherds and he was trying to get them to relate to themselves as a shepherd. And so he's starting to play with them a little bit. But here you got the Psalm 23, which David was a shepherd and they loved David. The Lord is my shepherd. Finish it. I shall not want. So he's kind of messing with them here. Like you got 99 sitting here, and then you have one that wonders, which one of you would not leave the 99 that are safe and go get that one? And what he's trying to tell them is, is this is the heart of God, and you're so far away from it that you cannot even register the fact that God's heart is to find that one lost individual, that one lost person, that one lost sheep. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. And so he's lumped these Pharisees in with the 99 who, who are self-righteous, 
who do not think they, they need to come to the Lord in repentance and see themselves before the Lord as truly who they are. These are the people that think they're good because they go to church, because they know the scriptures, because they have the part on the outside. And all day long, they're consumed with church. They think about church all day long and they're consumed with it, but their heart's not engaged with the Lord. So in all intents and purposes, they look religious. And Jesus says, that's the 99 that don't understand me. My heart is to seek after that one that's lost, that just stupidly wandered away. That tells us something about God, doesn't it? That's his passion. That's his mission. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me for I have found this peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there will be joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so he uses this example of a woman. And Again, he's messing with the Pharisees' heads because all scribes and all Pharisees were men. And he's sort of liking himself to this position of a woman. And they're probably so like, what is going on right now? Because they look down on women in that culture. And Jesus, and again, remember, he's teaching to multiple people. He's teaching the scribes and Pharisees and the tax collectors and sinners that are around there. He wants everybody to catch what's going on. He's kind of like, He's frying two fish here, if you will. And this coin, they know what they knew what that meant. We don't really understand this, but a woman who was engaged or married in those days had a, a piece of a cloth, nice cloth, and they put ten silver coins on it. And those coins were worth something. It's sort of like an engagement ring today the engagement ring. And when one of those coins fell off, it's very valuable to her. And so what's she gonna do? She's gonna tear apart that house. And she is going to turn it upside down and sweep it in and out. And she's gonna look for it. And when she finds that precious thing that she has lost that means so much to her, what is she gonna do? She is going to throw a party. She's gonna throw a party. So not only does this passage of scripture tell us about God's heart and when he finds a lost sinner, what does he do? He throws a party. What's this tell you about heaven? Now, a lot of us is like, what goes on in heaven? I don't know the full details. I don't think we could comprehend it. We're not even capable of comprehending heaven. But what it tells us here in these two parables is there's like a party that's going on here, angels. In the presence of angels, there's an enormous amount of joy and celebration going on. When one sinner, he says, repents. If you have accepted the Lord and you have repented of your sin, he's telling us here that there's a party going on. And we can't even see it and we can't even comprehend it. But it doesn't mean it's not happening. Because he's telling us this is happening. That's how awesome it is when a sinner comes to Christ. That's how joyful heaven is. That's like heaven's main purpose, right? To, to bring all these people back into a relationship with their heavenly father. 
That's what he's telling us. Now we get to the passage, the parable. He's like, he's, he's primed him here with two previous parables to really launch into this one uh, terrific parable of the lost son. And he says in verse 11, then he said, a certain man who has two sons, a certain man has two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions on prodigal living. So he's trying to say, okay, picture this in your mind as I tell you this story. One certain man has two sons. The younger is ungrateful. And he comes to him and he has the audacity to say to him, the inheritance I'm going to receive from you when you die, I would just rather have it now. In other words, I just prefer you to be dead right now so I can go about my life and enjoy the life that I want with the money and the possessions that are given to me, which I never deserved to begin with. So this young man, he says in this, in this parable, takes it, gathers all his stuff together, and he goes to a far country. He gets away from his father. He despises his father. He shames his father by blowing the inheritance on prodigal living. Later on, his brother accuses him of sleeping with harlots. He was promiscuous. He was blowing his money on his lusts. He was probably drinking and gambling and just, just unholy living, if you will. Just blew it all. But when he had spent it all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to want, to be in want. So he had nothing to show for it. He was far away. He couldn't afford anything. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, that faraway country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. At this point, guys, the scribes and the Pharisees were probably seething. How could a person even consider doing such a thing? And to go work with pigs, which is so unclean and unholy, that makes them unclean and unholy. They're not allowed to eat it of a pig and, and all these things or even be around it. It represents the unclean of the unclean. And this is where he has fallen. He had all these amazing things at his father's house and he completely shamed his father's name by doing this. And this is his plight. He's sitting there. They're probably saying, good for him. This is where he deserves to be right here. And they probably can't even fathom that Jesus is gonna flip this on them. <laughs> He's gonna totally flip this and redeem this man. But look at 16. Look how, how low this guy gets. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. Where's his friends now? Probably had all kinds of friends spending money on them. Where are they at now? He has to actually eat the pig's food. That's how low he has gone. Look at 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's 
hired servants have bread enough to eat, bread enough and to spare. Have enough bread to spare and perish with hunger. Let me reread that. I totally posed that one up. <laughs> but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. He has an epiphany. At this moment, he had that gut-wrenching moment where everything just came clear. What in the world did I just do? Why am I here? I had it so good at my father's house. And yet I'm sitting here eating pig's food and hanging out with pigs and I have no friends around me. I completely destroyed my father's name, demolished him, probably broke his heart. And the father had to let him go because this is the way he was going to learn. But you can just start to feel it. And when you ever have ever felt something like that before, you know what we're talking about. Where you've, where you've really done somebody over. And it was a huge learning uh, moment for you. Where it brought everything into, into perspective. To where it was a heart change. And it did not feel good to do it. That, those are the moments where real change happens. Where you have that epiphany. This man has had that epiphany. He's probably just in a state of remorse right now. And then he says, I will arise and go to my father. And will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he has this plan in mind. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off. Jesus wants us to picture this in our minds. He wants us to get in the scene. He's using these words. No, when that child, when he started coming, he was far away off. Far. His father saw him from a far way off and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Can you picture that? That this young man, he's probably, he looked like he'd been living with pigs, I'm sure. He's just walking so far off and the father just caught a glimpse and just looked, is that my son? And as they come closer, that's my son. That's the one who, who wished me dead. And what's the response of the father? It sure isn't to sit there and be like, oh my gosh, what does he want? He just did everything a child should not do to a father. Dishonored his name, took all his possessions, wished him dead. But the father's heart couldn't do nothing but to run out with compassion and just grab him and just kiss him. He could care less about what happened. All he was excited for is his son is back. And his son comes with real, true repentance. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Before, I wasn't your servant, but now I'm not even worthy to be your son. He's saying, can I just, can I just even be a servant in your house? And look at the father's response. What the father said to his servants in 22, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and the sandals on his feet. This man is considered royalty in my house. You dress him up because he's special and you put the family ring, the signet ring on him, which means authority in this house. And you make sure he's, he has shoes for his feet which in that day was a big deal. The servants didn't have sandals, but the people of the house would have shoes or sandals. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. This is like the Thanksgiving turkey. It's like something happening in October and you get so excited. It's like, I got this frozen turkey sitting right here in the freezer, man. Let's break this thing out. Who, who cares about when this thing is supposed to be killed or slaughtered? This fatted calf, let's break this thing out now. This is a big deal. This is a big dinner. We are going to have a big meal for my son. And this fatted calf represented a good time, a special offering. And they're presenting that to him because he blew it all, but he came back. He says to them, this is my son was dead. And is now alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to be merry. They were so happy. And they could care less about what he has done. They just wanted him back and they got him back. However, not everybody's happy when that stuff happens. And so the, the lost son represents the tax collectors and the sinners. It represents all of us. Regardless of what we've done, this is the father's response to us. If we come with that repentant heart and we understand his, we just want that relationship, Father. I'm so sorry. Look what he does for us. Look at his heart for us. There's no reason to be sitting in condemnation when all you can do is just go back to your Father and, Father, forgive me. Just please forgive me. But we have so many sitting in condemnation. We have so many. There's no reason for it. He didn't pay that price for you to sit in condemnation. He paid that price so you could have freedom. Freedom. And this right here, this older son cannot understand it. This religious elite person cannot understand it. Now his older son was in the field. So he's out working in his father's house. And as he came, he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. The one special piece of meat, you know, that was designated for something very special. But he was angry and would not go in was so upset about this. He could care less that his brother came home. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. 
And so can you guys get in the scene? So the father hears this. He's in rejoice in the house with everybody. He's got his son back and he has to go outside. He's like, son, what is wrong? Aren't you glad your brother is back? You should be excited too. What's going on? So he answered in verse 29 and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I've never trespassed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as the son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again. He's lost and he's found. So the scribes and those Pharisees were just sitting there around those tax collectors and sinners and he's saying to them, guys, my heart is for these people. And listen, those tax collectors and sinners more often than not, they were Hebrews, they were Israelites, they were children of Israel who have gone way off the path. They, know, they knew better. They willfully trespassed against the oracles of God. While the Pharisees were very strict not to do it. But they missed the Father's heart. They, they, they thought that they were good enough by their outward works. And they're looking down upon these people. When we start looking down upon people, we, we, that should be a red flag that goes off. It says, wait a second. I understand who I am before God. I'm not worthy of anything. And once you start doing that, you start seeing eye to eye with people. But they couldn't do this. They had, again, created their own God. They had totally missed the heart of God. And Jesus' mission was to go out to all the world and proclaim the gospel, even the Gentiles who were far off. And to bring them in relationship with their heavenly father, it's all throughout the Old Testament if you read it. And they should have known it. Yet they missed it totally. And when I read a section of scripture like this, what I read about God is he's desperately passionate about his people. He wants them to get it. And he said to that son, this is all yours. What are you doing? Why do you care? You can have it. Just ask. It's right here for you. But those people, those sinners, those Muslims, the homosexuals, the drug addicts, all these people that we could have a tendency maybe to look down upon. If Jesus was here, he would probably be hanging out in their midst. <laughs> you understand that? So now you can kind of see, it's like, wait a second. Jesus came for them and he says it through the scriptures. Matter of fact, go back to Genesis chapter 12. He says, you're to be the blessing to all the nations not just the Jewish nation, all the nations. And those nations believe in other gods and they do horrible things because they don't have a God. They don't have a heavenly father that loves them. 
That was the plan from creation, from the beginning. And when he included Abraham in that message, well, isn't he the father of all nations? Isn't he our spiritual father? Of course he is. And if you believe by faith, you're saved just the way Abraham was. And so it told us back in the Old Testament, this was the plan of God and it still is today. So where would Jesus spend most of his time? Would he spend time at church? Of course. That's where the people gather. That's where we encourage one another. That's where we teach the doctrine, the word. Jesus spent time in a synagogue and he was teaching. But it seemed like he was spending quite a bit of time in places where those Jews would not go. Most Jews, good Jews would not go. He was hanging out with the Samaritans. He's hanging out with the tax collectors, hanging out with the sinners. And that seems to dominate the scripture if you, if you sit back and you look at it. And those were the outcasts to the world. If he wants us to have his mind, Philippians chapter two, verse five, Paul tells us to have the mind of Christ. That means we walk as Christ walks. We have his heart. We feel his heartbeat and his heartbeat is to the lost. Of course, these people act this way when they don't have God. There's, of course, why, why are we so offended if we go out and they start cussing around us and smoking and, and or whatever? Expect that to happen. You don't have to partake in their lifestyle, but you have to love them. And he's displayed that for us right here. But he also wants us to know that he's extremely excited and he wants us to be excited when a person understands who they are before the Lord and they repent and they come to him. Are we having a party? Are we having a party? Are we joyful when a person literally has the epiphany and comes to the Lord? We see it a lot here. We see almost every weekend, if not every weekend, somebody comes to the Lord in our church. He can almost take it for granted. And I bet there's a lot of churches out there that wish they could say, man, just give us one weekend out of the year to see that. We're seeing God move in our midst, no doubt about it. We should be joyful and not skeptics. And one thing I do love about our church is that we just seem to be able to attract a whole slew of different types of genres of people that come through. They feel... They feel welcomed. And the church is the body, it's you. And so they feel welcomed and feel comfortable to be around you. And so it's happening in our midst. Just open our eyes and see God moving in our church and be extremely excited that God is in our presence. But remember this, and this is the big takeaway for me. And I read this scripture and I see just this young man who gets the epiphany and understands who he is before his father. And he comes like, I don't deserve anything. And, the, and my epiphany was, as I was studying this, and I go back and really one of my life verses is Matthew in chapter five, the very first beatitude. The Sermon on the Mount is the number one sermon ever spoken by Jesus. And he gives us just wonderful um, 
teaching for a disciple, somebody, a follower of Jesus. Act this way, do these things, and you're, you're walking in the heartbeat of God. And the first thing he says of the whole amazing sermon, he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. In that word, poor in spirit, it means you're bankrupt before God. You have literally nothing. When you get the, you know, the, the story of the widow and the two mites, at least she had something. And she was poor, but at least she had something. He's saying that you must recognize that you're literally bankrupt, spiritually everything before God. You literally have nothing to offer him. Nothing. And if you have ever gone to a third world country, you literally see people who literally have nothing. It is alarming when you're walking and all you see is a 10-year-old child on his knees with his hands out or an old woman who has literally nothing on her knees with her hands out, her head down, she's in shame and there's holding out, hoping that you would put something in their hands so they could have something. That's the picture I get when I hear poor in spirit. You can't enter into the kingdom of God, into salvation until you realize that. That we're all in this boat together. Not one of us is good enough, not even close. In the heart of that young man, that young son, even though he blew it all, God is so willing to forgive. But we must be poor in spirit every single day and to be an effective church in our community and in our world, we have to be a church that's poor in spirit. That's what I get out of this scripture. Out of a whole host of application points I can talk about, this is the one that I just must sit down and recognize, this is where it all starts, being poor in spirit. And knowing our heavenly father is good to forgive I know we've heard this many times, but isn't it good to just meditate upon this truth again? Amen? Amen. Isn't it good to know we can throw a party and it's okay when somebody comes to Christ? Because it's happening in heaven, we might as well enjoy it too. If you have walked into this church and you're not a believer, this passage of scripture tells me your heavenly father is on pursuit for you. He's in pursuit. He loves you that much. As he sees you far off, he wants nothing but to come and run after you. And he has been doing it and has been drawing you. And maybe the reason why you're here is because he's used somebody or something to draw you into his presence. And today is the day to know that your heavenly father loves you regardless of what you can offer him. You can't offer him anything other than worship. And he said, just, just understand this. That I sent my son to die for you. He paid a ransom for you. You're a purchased possession, the scripture says, waiting to be redeemed. You're actually purchased because he loves you that much. Every single one of us in here have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Every single one of us. And we must live our lives that way. But if you've never known Jesus as your savior. He says, that's the only way. This was my gift to allow you to come to me. And when you accept him, you repent of your ways. You realize 
We're not good enough. He wants to shower a blessing upon you, and that equals joy in the Lord. That equals joy in the Lord. That's the blessing he wants to give you. That means, that means you have forgiveness of sins. So when you stand before him, and everybody will, every single person is going to stand before our Heavenly Father, you're clean. No charge against you. Because Jesus is right there. He's saying, this is mine right here. But if you don't have that, then you're going to be standing on your own. And no person can stand to God and say, I was good enough. Not one person. But you know his heart. He came after us. He's seeking us. He wants us to be in a relationship with him. And if there's anything, if you're a prodigal, you know the truth and you have wandered and you have come back. Look at his response for you. Just realize it. He loves you that much. Repent, forgive. Ask for forgiveness. And come back to him. There's no condemnation in the Father's presence. He loves you. I love this passage of scripture. It's better than the Colorado burger. <laughs> Father, I... Sometimes I don't even know what to do with a passage of scripture like this. It's more than I can take in. But I do know there's many times I've read it. I didn't put much attention to it. And you want us to know your heart. And your heart is to love us and to be known that we have a relationship with you and come to you. And so, Father, I pray tonight, if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you, they would come to Christ right now. They would come down to the stage at the end as we sing, and they would come and talk to somebody. Not that there were anything, but maybe we can just rejoice with them and pray over them and lead them on a path of, um, of understanding who you are. So I pray. Father, you know the people that are in here that need you. Draw them. Open their hearts to hear that the gospel's for them, that they're a purchased possession and you want to redeem them. Regardless of what they've done, regardless, even the worst of the worst, you would hang out with them to come get them. There's nothing that we can do that would separate us from you that you can't forgive because your grace is sufficient. And for some of us that are in here that have wandered off, that we have just really taken the inheritance of grace and just stomped on it and treated it as it's cheap, we come to you and ask for forgiveness. Because no child of God can live in that, in that state without feeling condemned. And this passage of scripture tells us you want to you freely forgive and and develop that relationship and rejoice. And you know what else is going on in this, in this congregation. I pray over each person. I pray in the name of Jesus over each person, moving their hearts and their lives and help them to know you, to grow in a knowledge of you. Help us all to understand how to be poor in spirit. That we should never look down upon someone because we understand that we're completely bankrupt before you. And apart from your work and through Jesus' work, there's nothing we could have done, but by your grace, we're saved. We were lost and we're found. 
help us to bring other people into relationship with you through this truth. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please come to the front of the stage if you'd like prayer for anything. God bless you guys. Let's all stand.